You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. This series called Jesus Stories. One of the beautiful things about Jesus Stories is that Jesus tells stories so that we would understand how our story fits within the big story of God. We would understand what God actually expects and what God actually values. And when Jesus told stories, he told them as a window through which we would look to understand our lives better. And when he tells parables, he doesn't just want you to get the point. You might just understand, oh, that's the point. No, God wants you to understand the message of the parable, and it's deeper than that. And when we look with English eyes and we listen to, as we read in English, the stories of Jesus, we don't often pick up what a really a first century Jewish person would understand and just how brilliant what Jesus would do when he would tell stories. And so we're in this series. It's so important for you to understand how does your story fit within the big story of God? Because if you tell someone your story and it's all about you, and it's about where you project, you think you're going, and where you think are happening, and how you try to interpret the events of your past. If you don't understand God's plan in your life, if you don't understand God's intentionality in your life, if you don't understand that God has actually been pursuing you with a love relationship your whole life, then you don't know how to explain your setbacks, and your trials, and your disappointments, and your shortcomings. You don't know how to make sense of those. So it's so important for you and I to understand our story and how it fits within the big story of God. And that's one of the reasons that Jesus would actually tell stories. He's been teaching the people and all these people are coming from all over the nation and they're coming to hear Jesus. And he's been teaching the audience about what does it mean, the cost of becoming a disciple, the cost of following Jesus. And a lot of people in our culture right now, they want to be a fan of Jesus. They don't want to be a follower. They want to be a fan. They want to hit like about Jesus on their social media. They want to just say, yeah, I'm for Jesus. And, but they don't really want Jesus to be Lord of their life. They don't want him to actually be someone that they have an accountability to, that they actually say, what would a follower of Jesus actually do? And so we want to be fully committed, fully devoted Christ followers. And that's one of the things that Jesus wants for you and for me. But a lot of people just want to be a fan. And Jesus starts talking about, well, what does actually being a disciple look like? Because the Jewish people had started to get this mindset. All I got to do is do what the Old Testament law says or close enough. And if I can do what the Old Testament law says or close enough, then I'm pretty much sure I'll make it into heaven. And they had gotten into obedience to a list of rules or an association to a list of rules. And they made the bracket for their behavior and they kind of dialed it in. And then the Pharisees came along and they were heaping additional rules on top of the people. It was called the Mishnah. It had 3,000 more rules than the Old Testament law that God gave. Rules made by people put on the people. And so Jesus comes and he looks around and he sees these people are burdened with these heavy expectations from religious leaders, from experts in the Old Testament law, from everything else. And he wants you and I to understand that it's not a performance and it's not just liking Jesus, but that the cost of discipleship is that we give our lives to him and we are found in him. And suddenly our story makes sense within the big story of God because we're becoming the people of God that he's called us to be. And we experience joy even in the midst of the hardest circumstances. So Jesus is telling them, listen, it's, you know, people want to be a fan of Jesus. They want somehow to have a security of eternal life. They want to like Jesus, but they don't necessarily want to do the things that a disciple would do. And in the crowd today is Jesus' teaching. 
is an expert in the law. This guy is an attorney, he's a lawyer, and he's an expert in Old Testament law. And he's actually come here today with an ultimate agenda. He doesn't want to just learn from Jesus. He's come with another agenda. And so as we look, if you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 10. And there is a man there. He's a legal expert. And he's coming, hoping to trap Jesus in regard to the Old Testament Mosaic law. And in Luke 10, we find this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a question a lot of people ask. What do I got to do? What do I got to do to inherit eternal life? But this guy stands up, and I want you to realize that when you read that, you think, oh, that's like that's like person raising their hand. They just stand up and they ask a question. It's like our equivalent of raising a hand in class, but not to a Jewish audience. When Jesus is there and he's teaching the people and this man stands up, it makes a public proclamation to the rest of the audience. And to write this down, students would sit to learn from their rabbi. But this guy stands up to test Jesus. He appeared teachable, but he has other motives. So right away when he stands up, he's basically doing an interruption non-verbally and he's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love what Jesus does. Jesus, could Jesus have answered the question? Absolutely. Would it have been easy for him? No problem. But what does Jesus do? Let's look. Luke 10, verse 26. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? So Jesus asked the attorney a question. He answers his question with a question. It's like a good politician, right? He just answers his question. Well, what do you think? And guess what's happened? The guy's going to declare what he thinks. He says this. He answered with the Shema, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor, what? As yourself. We've talked a lot about this year, about as yourself, haven't we? That when we learn to understand how God has uniquely made you and how your story fits within his story, you're able to love other people because you understand the value that God's put on you. It's not all about you. Your story fits within God's story. It's all about him, but now you know how to work out of that, so it's as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And sometimes that's what you and I do. We ask Jesus a question, not because we want the answer to the question. We ask Jesus a question because we want to validate the bracket of our behavior. We want to say, God, look, I'm going to ask you this question. Why did this bad thing happen in my life? And if you tell me, then I'll have a good answer. And the reality is you don't really want the answer to that question. You're just addressing God and saying, God, I have a problem with how my life has gone so far. And so what I'm doing is I'm going to ask you a question to let you know that I kind of have a problem with what you think. It's what the evil one did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He asked the question, did God really say and he asked you and me the same question to get us to ask God the question. God, did you really say that to be a disciple, I need to obey in this manner? God, did you really say that this should be reserved for marriage? God, did you really say that? And you go on and on and on, and you and I begin to say, everybody else in culture doesn't really think this way, but God, did you really say? And what happens, you and I are asking God a question, not to get the answer because he's been clear in his word, but we're asking the question as a, experience for us to be able to say, God, I just want to validate the bracket of my behavior or my past experience. 
And that's what this guy is doing. He's saying, well, who then really is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. Now, justify is a weird word because it means different things to different people. Justify, I'll give it to you simple. It means this, just as if I never did it. If you are justified, you're declared not guilty. Not only not guilty, like as it, you're, you're back to the standing, like just as if you've never did it. Wouldn't that be nice to do that with your sin? You ever said something and you couldn't get your words back? I would like to justify that moment. <laughs> just as if it never happened, right? Came out, you want to grab them back. Justify. But this man, listen, wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. To be justified is to be saved, and the saved inherit eternal life. But he desired to achieve God's acceptance, write this down, on his own. On his own. He wanted to become righteous on his own merit. He wanted to become righteous on his own effort. He wanted to become righteous out of self-righteousness. Do you know what self-righteousness is? That's when you think you're right within yourself. So you have a bracket, you have a list of ideas, you have a way that people ought to behave, and when they don't, then you sit in judgment on them. You're self-righteous. You're sitting in judgment on other people because you have declared yourself right within yourself. Well, this man wants to justify himself, his own effort, his own self-righteousness, and you simply can't do it. You and I cannot justify ourselves. We can't. We can't perform our way or behave our way into heaven. It doesn't work that way. I mean, no matter how badly you want to justify yourself, you simply cannot do it apart from Jesus Christ. I'll explain why in just a little bit. But you might want to really strong, right? You ever been around a toddler who wants something really strong, but you know it's impossible for them? Like, they're like, no, I want to do it. If you pack like me, you overpack. And so if a toddler was like, I want to carry your suitcase. It is impossible for a toddler to carry my, no matter how bad they want to do it, they grab the handle, they probably will knock it over and lose a leg or something, just pin themselves under it, right? Because it's just literally impossible for them to carry my suitcase. Now, if you pack light, like Heather, maybe 50-50, right? But no matter how bad you want to do it, it's, for, it's impossible. You just simply cannot do it. And this man is wanting to do the impossible, I mean, it's just incredible to think of what he wants. He wants to inherit eternal life on his own effort. And sadly, that's what many people want to do today. They want to justify themselves on their own effort. They want to justify themselves based on their own self-righteousness. They want to create the bracket and live within the bracket as a means to justify themselves before God without asking God, what's your bracket? What are your expectations? What do you value? Not just the people around me, but what do you value? And that's where this man is. Write this down. Like many people today, the lawyer could not imagine that my neighbor extends beyond family to the stranger who lives in my town. He's asked the question, who then is my neighbor? That's what he wants to know from Jesus. Because I want to justify myself, so who's my neighbor? And here's why you need this sermon today. Here's why you need it. You and I are accountable to God for loving your neighbor. So you better know who your neighbors are. You better know who your neighbors are. In God's eyes, what's God's definition of our neighbors, not just what is your definition of your neighbor. And this man had a very specific impression of who he should love as his neighbor. And Jesus now is going to tell a story to kind of unwork that. He's going to tell a story to reveal the sickness behind the man's question. And so he begins to tell this story. Look with me at Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 30 and following. In reply, Jesus said, a man 
was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So Jesus introduces this story. This man gets attacked, and in many of your minds, you're thinking, well, what must that look like? But to the Jewish person who's standing there, they can actually picture in their head, what does it look like to go from Jerusalem up in the hills down to Jericho, which is 1,400 feet below sea level, the lowest place on earth? How, what does it look like to go from there to there, and, and how could the robbers surprise you, and how could they beat you up or leave you for dead, and how could you be vulnerable in such a place? But the Jewish listener would picture this. Let me show you a picture from Israel. Out in the distance is the Dead Sea. Jericho sits up next uh, to it at the north, northern end of that region. And they would be going down through a wasteland like this. You're exposed. You're vulnerable. They come from behind the rocks. They grab you. They take your stuff. They beat you up. They leave you half dead. Go to the next picture. And out there again, you're just seeing like just what kind of wasteland it is. You went from almost the mountains where pine trees grow in Jerusalem down to this wasteland, and then Jericho would be like a Palm Springs. There's water there. There's palm trees there. It's a really nice climate. It's a warm place, and people would often travel back and forth because not everybody could afford to live in Jerusalem, or maybe their home was actually in Jericho, and they would work for a bit in Jerusalem and come back. So everybody could picture immediately what Jesus is talking about. This man's out, he's exposed, he's vulnerable, he gets beat up, he gets robbed, and he's left half dead. And Jesus continues, he says this in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, to and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now you've heard the story sometimes of the Good Samaritan, but you've heard it through English ears, English speaking ears. And now I want to unpack the story of what would it look like for a first century Jewish person listening to Jesus who wants to use the story as a window to reveal yourself to yourself and to reveal the heart of God to you. What exactly is happening in this story? Well, we start off easy. The robbers take money, and the Samaritan gave of his own money. Robbers take it away, but the Samaritan gave of his own money. Not only did it come at a great cost of time to take care of this guy and money to the Samaritan, but he risked ended up being beaten to death by getting involved in helping this man. You say, how? How does the Samaritan put his life at risk? Well, what you don't understand is that this is a Samaritan. To a Jewish person, a Samaritan is a half-breed of a Jewish person who went outside God's boundaries and lived in sin and had a relationship with a non-Jewish person, and that child born to that is called a Samaritan. So picture for a moment. You're a Samaritan. You're going down the road. You're in Jewish territory. You're coming up toward a Jewish town. There's a man beaten to death on the side of the road. You're going to pick him up. You're going to put him in your ride. You're going to take it into town. And you're going to say, 
this guy got injured and it wasn't me. What do you think is going to happen to you when you get to that town? What do you think they're going to believe about what you said? I mean, literally, to put this in context, this is the equivalent of a black man in Memphis in the 60s dropping off a white man at the local police precinct and saying, hey, man, it wasn't me. He's all beat up and messed up, but it wasn't me. What do you think is going to happen to that man in the 60s? Or modern day, what do you think is going to happen to a Christian in Tehran who picks up a Muslim man who's injured by the side of the road and he drives him down to the mosque and he drops him off at the mosque and says, by the way, it wasn't me. What do you think is going to happen to that Christian? That's the kind of sticky situation that this Samaritan has just put himself in. He is risking everything, everything, his own life even, to help the one who is wounded, to help the one who is hurt. We'll write this down. The priest saw and did nothing. The Samaritan helped transport the wounded. Now, the temple in those days had three classes of Jewish citizens, three classes of people who would work in the temple. The first was the priest. The priest would be incredibly wealthy, which means he would have his own mode of transportation. The priest would not be walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He had a nice ride. He had a good donkey. And so he would have the means to transport this wounded man, but he doesn't. He doesn't do it. So there's three classes. The first one's a priest. The second one would be the Levites, right? So the Levite is like the assistant to the priest to help in the temple. Then you'd have regular lay people who would come along and serve in the temple, in the outer courts. And that was kind of your hierarchy. You had three categories, priest, Levite, and then you're kind of just a lay person who would just help out in the temple. The priest was rich. And would likely be riding. When the people would hear Jesus' made-up story, they would picture him riding down on his donkey. But he sees the injured man. He directs his donkey to the other side, and he goes by. And listen, as a priest, he had his own things to think about. If this man is near dead or dies, then I put myself in a situation where he has now made me unclean. And I have to go through ritual things to be able to be cleansed. And so there would be inconvenience for him. And so he rides to the other side, and he goes by in Jesus' story. The second man comes down, right? He's the Levite. He's the Levite. And the Levite fails to bind up the man's wounds. The Samaritan binds up the man's wounds and put oil and wine, actually, on them. So the Levite, remember, he's the assistant to the priest. And chances are, when you're hearing this story, you're thinking, actually, it's probably the assistant to the priest who just went by on the other side. Because he would knew, hey, he's traveling. And what would often happen is that a priest would go up and serve for two weeks at the temple, leave his home in Jericho, go up to the temple, serve for two weeks, and then go back to his desert home. And the Levite then would be following probably the priest that he assisted, he'd work for. And so he's coming along, he sees a wounded man, and he knows the priest has already gone by on the other side. He didn't stop and help him. He must have good reasons. And because the priest didn't do it, then I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to usurp his decision-making. I'm just going to go by the other side. It's going to inconvenience me too. So he goes around. He goes by on the other side. So as you're listening to this story, Jesus is telling it, and he basically says this. Priest goes into a bar, and then a bishop goes. I mean, basically what he's doing is he goes, there are three categories of people who work in the temple. What happens is this. You've got a priest, you've got a Levite, and so everyone's assuming the third one, this is the makings of a good joke, good joke, Jesus. Everyone's assuming that the third person's going to be a layperson because you've got priest, Levite, now layperson, right? And Jesus throws down something that is shocking to the hearers. He says, then a, 
a Samaritan. And everybody's just, their minds just exploded in that moment. What? We were sure it was going to be the layperson. But no, not a layperson. A Samaritan, a hated outsider, not even a Jewish person, a half-breed born of this sinful relationship between a Jewish person and someone who lived outside of the bounds of Judaism. A Samaritan comes along. Write this down. The Samaritan has compassion and follows through with action. He follows through with action. Luke chapter 10, verse 36, 37, after Jesus has told the story, he says this, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. See, on hearing the story that Jesus tells, the lawyer understands the point, love your neighbor. But more importantly, the lawyer understands the message, not just the point of the story, the message of the story. And the message of the story is you cannot justify yourself. You cannot become righteous on your own merit, on your own effort, by your own good works. You simply cannot do it. In fact, what's crazy to me is that he realizes I simply cannot perfectly keep the law and it's so weird to me in this story because the real account is what the guy replied. The guy can't even mention the name of the Samaritan. He can't even say Samaritan. Jesus asked him the question. He says, well, the one, the one who helped him. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't even get past his own prejudice. The one, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. Be like the one that right now you're prejudiced against. Be like the one who shows compassion like God shows compassion to you. And you cannot justify yourself based on your own merit. To be justified, it has to be a free gift in the sacrificial death of Jesus. What is sad is that this guy, picture this, the craziest thing is that he is asking the God-man, Jesus, the half-breed, if you will, the one who came from heaven but was born of woman, He's asking the one who will sacrifice his life on the cross, who will give himself up, who will be beaten, who will actually be killed, dead and buried, rose to new life. He's asking Jesus, what can I do to justify and be justified without needing you? And sadly, that's what people in our culture do all the time. How can I be justified by any other road, by any other path, by any other intention, by any other means without needing Jesus. I'll try it any other way, just as long as it doesn't involve Jesus. And that's exactly what this expert in the law is doing. Isn't it so ironic? He's asking Jesus, how can I be justified without needing you? He's trying to trap him. He's trying to catch him. And it backfires. Because God sees behind the sickness of his question and wants to get to the root of this man's heart. So you're asking the question, and people around you do it all the time. How can I get to heaven without Jesus? Do many paths lead to heaven? How can people be justified and made right with God without needing Jesus? And the answer is, you can't. And neither could this guy. Don't miss the message of the parable. And don't believe people who are trying to justify themselves by any other means without including Jesus. 
because they're fooling themselves. What we believe is the one who left heaven, the temple, and came to earth and was born in humble circumstances, who lived a perfect life without sin. He's the one who came from on high. He's the one who came down to the lowest point of earth. He's the one who was beaten and, and mocked and spit upon and crucified for you and for me. We're going to believe the one who's come from heaven to earth, sacrificed himself for us, and has ascended back into heaven. Why are we going to believe him? Because he came from there, so he's a reliable guide. All other guides aren't. They just aren't. We're going to believe Jesus. So the question is this. Write this down. To whom must I become a neighbor? See, many of you have neighbors, but you've not yet become a neighbor. Oh, you've got a lot of neighbors, but you have not yet become a neighbor to any of them. You just simply haven't. They're near you, and you think, you're probably thinking about people who live next door in the apartment next to you or whatever. You've got a lot of neighbors, but you have not yet become a neighbor to them. You might have known them for years, but you haven't become neighbors to them. In Elk Grove, I love Elk Grove because it's one of the most racially diverse places in the nation. And I truly believe that if you want to reach the world, you've got to live and work and minister in a place like California because people from all over the world come to here, to Sacramento region, to Elk Grove. And what happens is when you and I share the hope we have in Jesus, indirectly, people receive the hope they have in Jesus, and then they will share it back to their family and friends in other countries all over the world, and it will come from that person who has received hope through Christ in their own life, and they will tell their friends and family, you cannot be justified by any other way but through Jesus and let me tell you, there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out, like, how do I leave California? How do I get out of California? I think if you are a kingdom-minded person, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has probably planted you right here, right now, and put you on assignment because he knows you have neighbors who need him. And you can reach the world. You go to other parts of the country where nobody ever travels there. It's not diverse at all. And you'll minister to a bunch of people who really just don't have a heart for the world. But we want to thank outside of Elk Grove. And one of the beautiful things about being in Elk Grove and being a believer in Jesus Christ and being on assignment is that through the hope that Christ has given you, you can actually reach the world. So how do I become a neighbor to the person who lives next door? About a month ago, our neighbors who live next door, it's uh, my neighbor, and it's his wife, and the mom-in-law lives with them, and then his sister well, his sister went down to the Bay Area and allegedly got murdered. So my next-door neighbor got murdered. And how do we become Christ? And how do we become a neighbor to people who are, they're shell-shocked and they're, they're moving their stuff out and they're broken and they feel half-dead because they've lost a sister and a daughter and a sister-in-law? How do we become neighbors to them? Well, if you know my wife, Heather, that means we bake. And so we take baked goods over to them, and we took them flowers. That uh, means that we stop them on the outside their house, and we say, can we just pray for you? And we don't know their background. We found out their background. Half of them are Buddhist, and the other half are kind of Catholic and, and not really practicing so much, either of them. doesn't matter. Can we pray to the real, living, true God with you? We pray for them. One day I had gone and got the mail at the mailbox, and I'm walking back to my house, and the neighbor, the little... Asian grandmothers, she's about this tall, 
and she didn't speak a lick of English, and she's walking out, and we come on there, I just said, oh, I'm so sorry, and we had, you know, given them some baked goods and flowers and all this stuff. She just came up, she hugged me, and I just held her, and she just started patting my bottom. <laughs> I was like, I'm looking around at my neighbors, is this appropriate? I'm not, not quite sure what to do with this, right? But I think she's just this tall, so you think she's just patting my back, like, thank you, but she's just short. It means we become a neighbor to the people around us. We become a neighbor. You've got neighbors, but have you become a neighbor to the people who are right around you? How do you become a neighbor to the blended family who's splitting time with kids? How do you do that? How do you become a neighbor to the immigrant in our city? How do you become a neighbor to the people who live in the drug house that got set up in your neighborhood? How do you become a neighbor to the elderly who are in need? How about those who need Jesus, but they simply can't come to a physical location? They need the church. They need to be the church, but they can't physically come to a simple location. The question is, as you're traveling along and God reveals to you the one in need, are you going to stop? Or are you too busy? Are you too consumed? Are you going to say, God, did you really ask me to stop and help that person? Listen, personally, as I was just doing study in this passage about a month ago, I went to the store and I got cans of soup with the pop tops. So if I run into somebody in need, I can just give them soup and they don't need a can opener. Because it's too easy for you and me to drive by, right? But we stop. Can we stop? Can we do that? What would it look like for you to reach your neighbors? What would it look like for you to reach people not only who are your family, and the people who live right next door to you, but the person in need who might be a stranger in your town or a stranger in your world, how do you reach to them and be a neighbor to them? Do you remember back in the day when you and I, we used to go to, remember when you used to go to Blockbuster? You get like a movie, and you go in there, and you're all excited, and you got to look at all these movie titles, and the one you want, if the movie, the, the physical VHS had been taken, all they have is like the graphic laminated, you know, and you're like, ah, Somebody else has the movie, and I can't watch it until they return it, and so I'm going to put, like, first dibs on it if I can. Now you got to find some of the movie to watch, and then after you watch the movie, you got to return it back to Blockbuster because you're going to get fees, right? You're going to get late fees for not turning your movie back into Blockbuster. Wasn't that so convenient? Nowadays, we're like, what? That's crazy. I just go to Redbox. No, I'm kidding. What you do now is you just stream it. Like you stream it to your device. You can get it on your mobile device. You can get it right to your house. You don't have to wait. It's on demand. It just comes to you. It's like easy. Your cable offers all these movies to you. Remember when we used to go and we had to go to the warehouse and get music? Remember we'd go there and you, you have to go in there open because they're not closed and you got to go in there and you got to flip through the CDs. And you got to look at them or you got to flip through the cassettes if you don't have a CD player. And you got to flip through the cassettes. And then what you do is you take that cassette out and you stick it in and you play it. And you have to buy all the songs. You can't pick and choose. You got to buy the whole album. Even if you like one song, you got to buy the whole thing. And then you got to like fast forward. And, go, and then it goes click, click. And then it backs up. And then it finds a spot in there. You couldn't even like skip forward until you got a CD, right? Like it was so not convenient, Remember? The world has changed. And so let me ask as a church, how do we love the kids in a family who split time? Hmm? See, because one t 
time out of the week they're, you know, one week out of the month they're here, and then the next week they're somewhere else with another parent, then they're back here again. How do we disciple them? Could we provide for kids an experience of church that they can log into? Can we plant a church without a physical location? Or do we have to go to Blockbuster or Warehouse? Can we say Sun Grove Children's Ministry is available to you outside the wall? So when you're with your other parent, you'd be like, sorry, Mom, sorry, Dad, I'm logging in at 10 a.m., and I've got Children's Church at Sun Grove today. Could we do that? Can we plant a church without a location? Can we plant a church without borders? Can we help out friends who have been here at this church and they've moved away like AJ and Marcy who have moved to Arkansas and they're saying we watch the podcast from Sun Grove every week and we've tried churches but it's just not Sun Grove and we want the circle curriculum and we want to invite friends over and do a watch party and then have a circle group based on the sermon and we want to be able to do that on the weekend and can we be a Sun Grove church in Arkansas? Can we do that? And we want to talk with you about people who all over, some of you are married to people in the military, and they're off on deployment. And you're here, and you're experiencing the physical location of a place like Sun Grove, but we want to plant a church that reaches the people all over the world where they can see all the music, they can see the sermon, they have people interacting with them, they can click online, they can find out who else is watching in their region, they can gather up those people because we don't believe it's church unless you're interacting with other people. It's not just a solo watch thing online and excuse you from going to church. Could we plant a church that doesn't have a location? Could we plant a church online? And not have the overhead of a parking lot and facilities and all the things that come along with that. Could we do that? We're going to do it next year. We're going to become neighbors to not just the people who live next door to us or in our city. But we're going to become neighbors who share the good news of Jesus worldwide. Because we're not in the blockbuster and warehouse age anymore, are we? We believe that God can help us leverage technology in a way that helps people connect with one another and hear the good news of Jesus worldwide. And we're going to do that next year. Listen, sometimes you're on vacation. Sometimes you're out of town. Sometimes you come down with the flu. And we also want you to be able to experience what's going on here at Sun Grove, even when you can't be here physically. We need a church without a location but we want to reach the world. And that's what we're going to do next year. We actually reach through generosity right now. One of the ways that we do generosity is we open up our church and we open up church for Starbucks to do all their regional gatherings here. And there'll be like 400 uh, Starbucks store managers, assistant managers, and, and you know, upper echelon of Starbucks. And they'll come here and we just don't think it's a bad idea for Starbucks people to know where Sun Grove is. And it becomes really helpful when we build those relationships. And then a guy across the street who took his life a week ago Saturday, a young adult. That that young adult and those people who work at Starbucks and his family can come here and experience a memorial ministry. You don't know why? Because we also open up our doors to Rayleigh's. And Rayleigh's comes in here, Rayleigh's, Bel Air, Knob Hill. And they come in here, and they do all their corporate gatherings here, and we make it free for them. And they go, free? What? Are you kidding? Can we bring something? We say, yeah, bring toilet paper. There's a lot of you. <laughs> kind of helps us. They're like, no, no, we can do more. Starbucks says, okay, we'll bring you some coffee. Thank you. Rayleigh says, we want to make a donation. We say, okay, what do you want to donate to? They say, we want to donate to your memorial ministry because we'll put on a memorial for people who don't know Jesus so that we can share the love of Jesus and be their neighbor. So a little over a week, the memorial for that young man 
who's not a Christian and his family isn't per se Christian will be here and they will hear the good news of Jesus. Why? Because we want to stop. We want to look and see who our neighbor is and we want to minister to them. And that's at this physical location. But can we do it to be the church outside of the walls of this place? Yes, you and I are the church. We are the church of the living God. And so God wants us to take what happens in here and have it make a big difference in the world out there. That's what God wants to do. And so he's going to basically take what we do in here and he unleashes us. That Sometimes it's not the job of the priest to stop. Sometimes it's not the job of the Levite to stop. Sometimes God's calling you to stop because he's put the need in front of you and he wants you to be a neighbor to that person because that's what Jesus did for you and for me. Can we stop? Well, next week, we'll talk about my best gift a little bit. And in the next coming weeks, and what we do is typically take a gift that's outside of our general giving. It's above and beyond. And my best gift for next year will be to start a church without a location, to start a church that's online, and then do it for adults, do it for children. We also want to do a second thing. The second thrust of my best gift next year will be to create irresistible environments for children's ministry right here in this building so that when they walk in, they know that they are welcomed. And it's going to be exciting in our children's ministry in the days ahead. We can't wait. But that's what my best if is going to go toward those two things this next year as you'll hear more about it at that time. Write this down. I must become a neighbor to the one in need regardless of language, religion, or ethnicity. I must become a neighbor to the one in need. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is the one in need. And let me tell you, there are people who are in need who never physically can get to this location, but they need the good news of Jesus Christ. And so will you partner with us? Will you sacrifice of your own time? Will you sacrifice of your own resources? Will it come at great cost to you to reach people who are in great need? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just think about your own life. I want you to just consider this for a moment. Perhaps today you've realized for the first time that Jesus' death on the cross offers you righteousness before God. You can't be right in yourself. You can't justify yourself. But Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his free gift of eternal life justifies you. And you just need to give yourself to it. And the way that you do that is through prayer. And so you just write where you're seated, pray something like this after me to say, Jesus, today, I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins, that you were buried, that you rose to new life, that you're God. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sin and wash me as white as snow because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if you made that decision, you just raise your hand. Right where you're seated. You prayed that prayer, you just raise your hand up. I'm looking around the room, love to see you. You might be in the loft, my friends will see you there, but if that was you today, then you just raise your hand. God, we're so grateful for all that you've done. We're thankful for the way that you have reached to us. And Jesus, we ask you to help us be neighbors to those who are in need. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for your sacrifice that you saw our need and you came down and you stopped and you cared and you sacrificed for us. You're a great God, and our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, and together we said, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.